Hello and welcome to the Rules of Investing brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm Ali Selby and today's guest is a favourite among our readers. She's been working in markets for 13 years, having started her career in equity research on the sell side in 2010 before joining Fidelity's Australian investment team as an analyst. In 2016, she joined Early Funds Management. It's the boutique started by investment greats David Cooper and John Sevior in 2012 and since then she's worked her way up to manage the Early Australian Share Fund alongside Hall of Famer Matt Williams. I'm talking, of course, of star stock picker Emma Fisher. In this episode, we'll be discussing why Emma believes it pays to be bullish over the long term in markets, how you can avoid the bears, the areas of opportunity she has identified today, as well as a few of her favourite stocks. Before we jump into the podcast, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Research shows that experienced investors are looking for an edge. As the first ever sponsor of Livewire's Rules of Investing podcast, Bell Direct is offering exclusive access to three current Bell Potter stock reports every week for a limited time and the chance to win a share of 3 million velocity frequent flyer points, which we'll explain at the end of this podcast. Emma, thank you so much for joining us on the Rules of Investing. First off, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. Without any fluff or jargon, how do you think about investing? Oh, well, thank you for having me, Ali. And you've just dropped me in the deep end with a really big question. So how do I think about investing? I think, well, first of all, I've got to define, you know, what I want to be doing here. Like, what's my motive? And it obviously is long-term wealth creation. And then when you think about, well, why, why have I picked equities as an asset class rather than long-term wealth creation through property or bonds. I think, you know, the thing that's always attracted me to stocks is this opportunity to invest in great businesses. You know, I'm one of those people that my husband always says, like, I don't have any hobbies. Like, I'm not good at anything, right, in the real world. And I think, like... I feel the same. I'm like, what hobbies do I have? I think it's a female and male thing, actually. Like, I I feel like most of my female friends don't have hobbies, but men, it's all... My husband's into cycling. Like, it's always always something like that cycling or golf or but either way like I always think if I if I had to make it on my own with like a business idea in the real world I would be screwed like I wouldn't have a good cafe I wouldn't have a successful hair salon anything I could do with my own money would be very unlikely to let me earn very good returns for a long time and yet through this you know amazing quirk of the system as a shareholder like I can sit as a talentless shareholder in my seat in our office and invest in these businesses that do have something really special going for them that have great barriers to entry and you know just effectively hitch my wagon to their long-term success so I've always really loved that and that's kind of attached to this concept of not trying really hard not to look lose focus of you know there's two worlds there's the real world of business and that's you know when I was walking over here from my office, we're in Barangaroo, so it's like quite a long walk and I'm looking around, it's like all these people going to work, going to their offices, that's the real world, you know, people that are making things. And then there's financial markets, which aren't the real world. And I remember learning in uni, like Finance 101, that financial markets, they exist to, you know, serve as a, a, a you know, a, a the opportunity to raise capital for the real world. Um, So having that distinction in my mind, it helps cut through the noise a lot because a lot of the stuff that you read about, it really just pertains to financial markets. It doesn't actually change anything in the real world. So not losing sight of the fact that as an investor, you're investing in real businesses run by real people that are doing real things. 
and if you find the right business, the opportunity to own it for a long term and, and hitch your wagon to that business success is really exciting for me. Can we dive a little bit deeper into that? What are, what are we reading in the financial world that is just, you know, we need to, I guess, have a reality mm. check? Yeah, it's funny. So I, um, for whatever reason, um, our lunchroom, like whenever we, whenever I move away from my desk into the lunchroom, they've got CNBC playing like all the time. So I kind of been exposed to, I would, I would classify that as like, you know, the financial media It's playing 24 seven. And obviously they've got to fill their slots, but like a lot of the stuff that I hear kind of does make me laugh. Like I remember the other day, some guy was talking about the fed decision, but his wording was like, you know, American guy do a terrible accent. Like the whole financial world is waiting to see tonight if it's a hawkish pause or a dovish pause. And, and I just, everything hinges on that. And I just laughed. I'm like, what? What hinges on this? Like, this is, like, Matt, who I work with, always says, like, this is tomorrow's fish and chip wrapper. Um, it's a different, you know, the media, I suppose, it's a different business model. You've got different motives. You're trying to sell something. You're trying to attract eyeballs. Whereas we're trying to make money over the long term. Um, so I'm, pre- you know, I, I'm pretty passionate about this when it comes to like individual investors and, and personal investors who are sitting at home and, and, and consuming all of this stuff. I don't want them to, you know, let let some of these voices, I guess, bluff them out of accessing the really powerful long term compounding that investing allows you to have. So I always try to, you know, have that mindset of, you know, trying to cut through this noise. Um, but yeah, maybe not everyone has that. And, and the fear, and there is a lot of fear, you know, fear sells. It's a really strong human um, psychological element, right? We, we, especially when it comes to money, like we're so fearful of it. That, that, you know, that study, like people would rather not lose money than win money. So it's a really powerful kind of behavioural force that, that markets and media have hooked into. And you have to kind of have your wits about you to push back against that, which is why, you know, for me, I keep coming back to this, you know, does it matter in the real world? Like this guy saying that all that matters in the real, all that matters for markets is the the tone of the Fed that month. You know, what really matters is it doesn't tell you anything about like, uh, you know, for, for Wesies. So like is Bunning, is anyone ever going to really close that gap between Bunnings and their nearest competitor? That's what really matters. Having a view on that. For a business like CSL, you know, what's the probability of success of CSL 112, which is their biggest, you know, drug in their pipeline, which is a cardio, potential cardiovascular blockbuster. That matters for that business. The All the stuff that you read about day to day, very little of it matters in the long term um, for investing. Okay. As a retail investor, I find investing quite stressful at times with all that negative news and fear that you see. I imagine professional investing is even more stressful. I mean, you're constantly being compared month to month on your performance, let alone to your peers. What keeps you inspired? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, I've thought about this a lot. Whenever, whenever I go to think of my job as stressful, which I do sometimes, um, I remember like quite a formative um, experience when I first started in, in the industry, I was working in equity research on the sell side, so at a broker. And, you know, you work really late nights, it, it can be quite a stressful environment. And I remember somebody once saying, oh, this job can be so stressful sometimes. And one of the guys that I worked with, he's awesome, really smart guy. He used to be an orthopedic surgeon and he like cut this guy off and he's like, this isn't stressful. He's like operating for 12 hours trying to save someone's life is stressful going out and telling like a mother that you couldn't save their kid, that's stressful. This isn't stressful. And it was actually really, like it always stood with me as like this really valuable reference point for the fact that, you know, we aren't, the, the pressure comes from the fact that you're investing other people's money. That is a real pressure. That is a real responsibility. That's something that I don't take lightly. 
And I think it's good to feel that pressure every day because it stops you from, you know, making willy-nilly risky calls. But beyond that, I don't think leaning into or, th- or dwelling on the additional pressure is in any way helpful for make- helping you make good decisions. So it's a long way of saying, like, I try to keep it light. Like, I lean into the fun in my job, and it is. It's an amazing job. And I think I like the way that you phrase that question of what inspires you because what inspires me is, you know, being able to be part of this world of constant learning. Um, you get to learn a little bit about so many different industries and like it's kind of like this airplane test of uh, often I'll be sitting in an airplane seat and chatting to the person next to me and and when I ask them what they do so often no matter what industry they work in I have a very very small sometimes or sometimes quite large understanding of the basics of that industry because of the job that I'm privileged to do Um, and then the other thing that really gets me inspired is like you get to be around really smart people Um, I think sometimes you can lose sight of the fact like, you you know, as a professional investor, you get an hour of management's time maybe twice a year and you can lose sight of the fact that these people have worked their way up through a really large organisation in a lot of cases. They are the cream of the crop Um, and that's not to, you know, blow smoke up every management team, but I think you have to have a healthy level of respect for that and it's just such a cool dynamic that, you know, I'm like a nobody in my 30s and that I get to spend an hour of their time understanding how they think about business, understanding how they think about strategy. That's that's also really cool. Um, so that's what inspires me, um, being part of the world of constant learning and and understanding how the world works. You're definitely not a nobody in your <laughs> 30s. I feel very privileged to sit down with you today. And it's one of my favourite things about this job too, is that you get get to sit and learn from the smartest people in the room. It's been two years since you last appeared on the Rules of Investing podcast. Rates have lifted 400 basis points and the ASX 200 really hasn't gone anywhere since then. In your mind, what has been the biggest change in your portfolio over the last two years? It's interesting when you reflect on it like that because if if I'm honest with myself and I'm lucky two years ago that you I can't actually remember, but I don't think anybody did ask me this question because I would have got it really wrong. But if I'd been standing two years ago and if I'd known in advance that rates were going to rise 400 basis points, which is very quick in two years, well, for for starters, I actually would have been arguing that that wasn't going to happen. I put myself in the camp of, you know, you hear when rates were on the, you know, the floor for so long, every now and then you'd hear somebody like typically like an older boomer say like, (laughs) oh, what are you going to do affording that mortgage when rates are back at 5%? And I remember always thinking in my head, they're not going back to 5%. Uh, And the reason that I thought that, you know, I thought it was valid reasoning at the time was, you know, rates, rates are effectively like a, a break and and an accelerator and as rates came down the level of debt went up in response to that and so I thought we'd be more sensitive to the break I thought you'd only need I don't know throwing a number out there maybe 200 basis points of rate rises to affect the slowdown that those rate rises were trying to affect and I was just totally wrong on that now luckily because I'm not a macro investor it's not as though I've positioned a portfolio for this view that, you know, being wrong on it has meant that we've dramatically underperformed or anything. Um, it's just a reflection. You know, I put myself in one camp and I've learned two years later that I was totally wrong. Um, the other thing that I've learned, which has amazed me, is if you'd asked me two years ago how many companies in the ASX had pricing power, I think I would have been able to name like three or four straight off the top of my head and they would have been the really obvious high-quality businesses. But it's turned out that almost everyone has had pricing power. 
And I suppose that's what inflation is. It's passing on cost pressures through price increases to an end consumer that has been extraordinarily willing to wear it. But that has surprised me. So it's interesting, you know, to look back two years ago and and think about how much I've learned in such an extraordinary period, how it's flowed through to our positioning. Um, Again, because we're not macro investors, like there hasn't been a huge amount of change, say, in our top 10. What would be different is sometimes we'll own a business that's really more of a trade rather than a long-term holding. A lot of businesses will typically want to own ideally forever unless something gets really crazy in terms of the valuation or the strategy. You know, something like a, a, a Wesley's Bunnings, such a good business, we're probably there for a very long time. Whereas, you know, two years ago, we might own in our top 10, you'd probably see a stock like Helios, um, which we, we no longer own. Um, and it was really a trade. And we actually sold that when they bought that at Jillick's business because we thought that we couldn't make sense of the price they paid. And, you know, we'd lost confidence in the capital allocation decisions. So that's, you know, that, I guess that's an example of one that um, we owned at the time. But it, it's always going to be stock-specific reasons. It's never like, well, we sold this stuff because we started getting really bearish on this particular cycle. Mm. Is there any portfolio holding that you feel like has been more resilient than you expected over that two-year period? Well, that's a really good question. I would say James Hardy. And I know the reason is 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 ultimately that they have – and I, I, funnily enough, if you'd asked me two years ago to name those companies with pricing power, that would have been one of the three. So they've exercised that pricing power. They've pushed through a lot of price over the last three years. But the dynamic has been that for the first 18 months of that price increase, they needed it because their raw materials just went crazy. So they had a lot of margin pressure. So you didn't actually see it really hitting um, – benefiting the earnings and now the opposite is happening a lot of their costs are coming off they've taken so much price and so their margins are being very very resilient now the reason I say that's surprising is because obviously James Hardy is a building product they sell it mostly into the U.S. housing cycle and again if you told me that 30-year mortgages in the U.S. were going to go from having a two-handle to you know for one month having an eight-handle I would have thought that that would have been totally smoked all activity would have been smoked Um, but it's been remarkably resilient. There's a great saying in markets that being bearish sounds smart, but being bullish makes money. In your latest annual review, you drew on some long-term data to demonstrate why it pays to turn down the noise, particularly in times like these when consumer confidence is at 1991 recession-type levels. In the report, you note that in the last 35 years, we've seen seven years where the total return of the ASX 200 was negative and 28 where it was positive. In my industry in news, there's a saying that bad news sells. Can the same be said for markets? Why do we pay attention to the bears so yeah. much? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, and I, like I do this too when I read something that's quite bearish, like it plays into our psychology. It plays into our wiring um, of fear being a very emotive um, feeling. And so you sound smart when you're bearish. You sound like you have considered some risk that other people haven't considered. So I guess what I wanted to do in that analysis that you're referring to, so I had a look back at the returns of the market and broke them down. I kind of wanted to just create some, 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 I don't know, intellectual weight behind this constant feeling like I'm a dumb bull um, versus these smart bears. And, you know, the data bears it out, I suppose. Four years out of five over the last 30, 35 years, the market has risen. Um, it's really only the one year in five that, you know, you stub your toe. So I guess I'm happy to, if, if I'm probably not going to predict which accurately which one year out of five I'm going to stub my toe, I'm just happy, 
you know, uh, as long as I haven't got a lot of risk on the table, to, to sort of wear that, f- to participate in the four years where I'm having a good time. Uh, but what was interesting about the analysis was that earnings actually fall a lot more frequently than the market. So there have been seven instances where the market's fallen in the last 35 years and posted a negative return. Uh, but there have been um, double that, uh, 14 times that earnings have fallen. So earnings are falling two out of five years, which just goes to show that, uh, you know, you can't just focus on one thing. It's a big pie. And the reason that earnings are more volatile than the market is because you're also getting dividends. And the market's pretty smart. When when earnings fall out of bed, it usually re-rates those earnings and, and puts them on a higher multiple, and that can offset some of the damage. You know, in the GFC, for example, earnings fell 40%. But because the market re-rated, the market only fell 20. Now, only fell 20. That's a pretty bad time. But it's not 40. Um, because the market says, well, hang on a second, this is clearly below mid-cycle activity, so we're going to put it on a higher multiple. Um, so that's kind of a natural offsetting factor. Also, I mean, when there is this much fear, that's usually the best time to invest, Absolutely. Right? Like on a stock-specific level, I think a really good example last year would have been Medibank. You know, I always say to myself, if it's in the papers, if it's in the headlines, it's probably in the price. You know, Medibank's cyber attack was very emotive. It dominated headlines for, I can't even remember, maybe four to six weeks even. And it smashed the share price from $3.50 down to, I think I got to two eighty. For, you know, a big, steady, large cap stock, that's a huge amount of value destruction. I think it was something like $2 billion of market cap wiped off because of this event. You know, we did... We did some calls. I can't say, you know, we got to the bottom in terms of cybersecurity experts about, um, about the issue, but I, probably what was more instructive was I basically asked everyone I knew, because they've got 30% market share, so anyone you talk to, one in three of them are actually with Medibank. Yeah. I asked everyone I knew, mates, things like that, sent out a bulk text, like, are you with Medibank and is this cyber attack meaning that you're going to switch? And Oh, actually, quite a lot of people came back and said, yeah, it's my health data, so I am quite sensitive to it, so I think I'm going to switch. But not one person said they had. And then I thought, oh, I know my mates, they're pretty lazy. Like Inertia <laughs> is a very, very powerful force. So nobody had switched, and this was you know, well into the um, saga. So I figured once it's off the front page, the impetus is gone. You just forget about it. So we, we bought quite a lot, and it ended up being the right call because it ended up being quite a short-term factor. And this just happens all the time. So many things just seem to dominate the story. And if you're looking, you know, some things some things genuinely do t- change the long-term value of a company. There's no doubt about that. Mm. Um, but not as many things as you'd think. And certainly not as many things as ha- do happen. So exploiting that tension between something that seems to matter in the short term, but something that actually truly matters in the long term. And Something only really matters in the long term for a business if it changes the returns profile of the business. So I I always kind of refer to this analysis because it astounded me. But like if you go back to 2019, we had a look at the ASX top 20 and what the 52-week changes between high and low was in that year. And we picked that year and I still refer to it because like I think it was like the last boring year that we all lived through. Like I can't think of one historical event that happened in 2019 and yet the 52-week high and low for the top 20 most boring stocks in Australia was 45%. And then, you know, if you, if you look at the 100, the ASX 100, that number was something like 60%. So their, ch- their values are changing so, so quickly, but their real value in the real world is changing over years and decades really, really slowly. 
So I'm always interested in exploiting that tension, I suppose, between, you know, the the short-term fanaticism of the share market and how few things actually really change things for businesses in the long term. I feel like there's two instances of stocks where we're seeing a lot of negative news right now, and mm-hmm. that being Qantas, mm-hmm. of course, and ResMed. Yep. Do you see any opportunity there? Yeah, it's funny. I, Qantas, like, you're totally right. And, and part of me... Part of me definitely just wants to go out and buy it because I'd say, you know, it's got everything going against it right now. The X factor for that stock and the thing that holds me back is the fact that they have an incredibly large CapEx program ahead of them. So they need to fund, I think, something like $15 billion worth of fleet renewal over oh, the next... Oh, thank God. Their planes y- are terrible. I was recently on one. They are really bad. They are really bad. They are really bad. If I come on board as a new shareholder, I'm funding that. So it's funny, you look at the enterprise value of the business today, if you know that they have to replace pretty much their whole fleet, then you're not getting the fleet as part of that enterprise value. What are you getting? You're getting a brand, you're getting an idea, and that's an idea that's really tarnished. So do I want to come on board and fund that fleet renewal so that at the end of that period, I suddenly own a business that has assets, hard assets and a brand? I'm not sure. Like, I don't think it's obvious. Now, what could make it obvious would be another big leg down in the share price. That would be an instance where suddenly the valuation accounts for all of the risks. But, you know, I try to be pretty dispassionate about this stuff. You value it, you model it, you model how you think the cash flows are going to land, you model, you probably want to detract some regulatory fines, probably want to detract some reinvestment into the business. And you're starting to see them already admit that they have to do that. And you're left with some some level of operating cash flow that probably, off, again, off the top of my head, will be somewhere around two and a half billion of operating cash flow. But they're pretty much going to have to spend all of that on planes each year. So what are you left over as a shareholder? Not much. So it's a tough one because I don't want to be too negative on it at the same time because I love these instances where it's a total pile on. Equally, in 100 years, I think Qantas is going to be around. I think they're going to be making a ton of money. I think they're going to be our dominant national carrier. I think their position, you know, I've met with um, other airlines across the world and none of them have anything like the golden goose that Qantas has. You know, if you meet with, um, you know, airlines in the UK, like it is just so competitive. You make no money. You don't make no money on short haul. You just hope that you make it up on long haul. Like you, it's the opposite for Qantas because we have such a large country, that golden triangle of, of people flying to, um, you know, f- effectively up and down the East Coast that is just so lucrative for them. So, you know, it's, some, it's something we've done a lot of work on. We, we keep looking at the situation, but right now um, we don't own it. ResMed, though, I'm glad you asked about that. Uh, ResMed, I think, is – I don't want to be too unequivocal. No, I'll be unequivocal. I think it is probably the most interesting or outstanding buy idea on the ASX right now. It is probably one of the top three highest quality businesses of the last 20 years listed on the ASX. It's been a 17-bagger since 2004 so very high quality company and right now it's trading on a p of 19 times and to put that into context if you take the market and you strip out banks and you strip out miners what you're left with is what we call industrial businesses which is just another way of saying it's not a bank and it's not a miner industrial businesses are trading on an average p of 20.6 times so this is a business that's got one of the best track records in the ASX, and it's cheaper than the bog average um, industrial business. It's cheaper right now than Telstra. 
you know. So it not to pick on Telstra, but I know which business has a better track record of creating value. So why is it cheap? Well, very, very quickly, in the last six weeks basically, global investors have decided that GLP-1s, which, you know, probably are more better known by their um, by the brand name Azempic, although there are other brands, but let's call them Azempic, these weight loss drugs are going to cure obesity. And sleep apnea, which is the device devices and masks that ResMed sells uh, um, to treat sleep, sleep apnea, about 70% of people with sleep apnea are obese. So it's gone from being this company where everyone's seen, you know, basically six to eight percent top line growth ad infinitum because nothing is holding back obesity growth rates sadly you know death taxes and you know people getting fatter um that they were the sure things um in life and then suddenly we've got something that looks like it could be a solution i'm happy to take the other side of that bet for a few reasons mostly for valuation reasons i think now the share price is pricing in very extreme degradation of its end market Basically, a third of their, let's say, you know, install base for sleep apnea patients, a third of them, it's not obesity related at all. So, you know, they're a lock no matter what happens with the penetration rates of ozempic related drugs. A third of them have severely obese, so have such high BMIs. Now, these drugs are associated with 20, um, maybe some of the like early stage later, um, you know, the next drugs in the pipeline, even higher, but 20, 20, even 25% body weight loss which is huge but that's not enough to bring a severely obese person down to the level of uh what's called ahi which is ba- so it's an index to to see how bad your sleep apnea is but basically it's how many times in an hour do you stop breathing during the night now the fatter you are the more weight there is on your neck and so that number tends to be higher so very very obese people with very high bmis will have like 60 times an hour where their airways collapsing if they lose 25, 20 or 25% of their body weight, that is fantastic for them. They will be able to have a CPAP device and a mask and use a lot less pressure to keep their airway open, but they won't be able to come off CPAP, I don't believe. Their BMI will still be too large. They'll still be having – technically they'll have sleep apnea still. So my view is a third not obesity related, they're fine. A third uh, too obese to lose enough weight to come off it um as a reasonable base case so they're probably fine and then it's about the one third that are overweight but not obese and what happens to those people do they lose enough weight to come off the drugs now that's going to be around adherence and their ability to access the drugs so these are very expensive drugs and they have a lot of side effects and if you come off them you put the weight back on so you have to be on them for life. Like I've been trolling the Reddit group of people that are on Azempic and, and a lot of these drugs. And, you know, every second or third post is people complaining about nausea and, you know, like going to the bathroom accidentally and stuff like that. Like this is, it's not the sort of stuff ideally you want to be on for life. So for all those reasons, I think it's overblown. Um, the share price has fallen about 35% in the last couple of months. And now is trading at a very attractive valuation for a great business. Mm. I want to turn now to the subject of investor psychology. In your view, what separates the good investors from the exceptional ones? Yeah, I think it's all around temperament. So I've noticed like I don't put myself in the camp of exceptional investors, but I really concentrate on people like what, what people who I do consider exceptional investors, what they do well. So I guess I'm speaking of my observations from people I really respect and admire, what they do differently Um, And I think it comes down to temperament. 
you know, they're often pretty relaxed people. So any portfolio manager is, you, you know, you're only as good as your analyst team because you cannot be all over everything and you cannot be all over the, the detail of everything. So you need a really good team of people that you, you know, you know and trust that are, you know, feeding you good ideas. And a good portfolio manager allows people that work with them the space to make mistakes and allows themselves the space to make mistakes. Like I think it can almost be distilled to like you've got to be willing to be wrong. doesn't mean you want to be wrong, but you've got to be willing to be wrong. Your ego has to be able to handle it. That's why I think ego is so dangerous in investing because you probably start pushing back like I wasn't wrong, this, this, this happened, this, you know, who could have foreseen that, that sort of stuff. You have, you know, we're going to be wrong as investors very, very frequently it's only valuable if you can look at your mistakes and go, well, here's why I was wrong and here's how I can, I can avoid that next time. But I've noticed that in interacting with, you know, basically the higher the hubris, the less willingness you are to admit that you're wrong. And that is just fatal, fatal for an investor. So they're usually people that are very grounded, have great temperaments, are relaxed, allow the people around them the space to be wrong. They themselves have the courage to be wrong, to get off the fence. Because that's what, it, you know, it's, it's not correlated with intelligence, the smartest people I know don't make the best investors. It's almost negatively correlated, I think. Like if you're too smart, you can see all the risks and you you'll never get off the fence. And that's the thing with investing is like you never know, you'll never get full comfort that your answer is correct, that to buy something is the right answer. There's always, especially because when the value's there, the risks look like they're there. So you, you have to be willing to take on risk and lean into fear. And I think this almost like the more intelligent you are, the more risk you see and you can really suck yourself out of taking a view. So, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily intelligence. It's this weird hybrid combination of, of a very even temperament and a willingness to be wrong and, and a lot of courage. Do you feel like during your 13 years in markets, you've noticed any biases or weaknesses within yourself that you've learnt to, I guess, tame? Yeah, absolutely. Like, and this is why I love my job, because you just get hopefully better every year and I think when I was younger definitely my worst bias was losing conviction at the bottom you know I would just feel like an idiot and and just really be like lost in the mistake that I'd made rather than leaning into the fear because you know take Resmed for example we we first bought that probably around 30 bucks 31 dollars not a very big position it's fallen like a stone it got to 21 dollars the other day and we have dramatically increased our position so should I have just sat there and, you know, f- flagellated myself for buying it at the wrong price and not had um, the courage to add to that position? That would have been, hopefully, you know, still live. So I haven't been proven right. But I think that would be the wrong way to play it. But that's probably what, you know, the old scared me might have done. I, you know, I can give you countless examples in the past of times, you know, stocks like James Hardy that where there is a cycle at play where, you know the the opportunity is there, and you have a you have a small position, but you don't back up the truck in the way that you should have for something that you know really well, and and you don't back up the truck because you're fearful at the same time that everyone else is fearful. So I try to push back on that. It's really helpful. Matt Williams, who I work with, who's you know he's a Hall of Fame investor. He's he's been doing it for thirty years. I'd say his best quality is his courage. He's the opposite of that. He when things fall, he just wants to buy. And that has been a fantastic counterweight for me. So I, you know, if I give myself a scorecard, I've noticed I've gotten better at that, at leaning into the fear. But part of it is just being able to acknowledge that that is your weakness, you know. And and if you if you're aware of that, it's what I call point of maximum pain. Like often when I'm feeling the worst about something, like when I'm feeling like I never want to see that ticker again, like please <laughs> don't bring up this company. 
that's usually the point of maximum pain and that's usually when the stock is a buy. The only rule that we have where that isn't the case is when the balance sheet is bad. And if there's any reflexivity between earnings falling and suddenly the balance sheet gets in, called into question, you don't want to go there. You know, that's actually when you probably should cut, cut your losses and sell. But if the balance sheet's good, the lower the share price, the lower the risk. That's all there is to it. Mm. Um, so you should usually be holding at the very least or adding. Let's dive deeper into your portfolio. With consumer confidence at recession levels, where are you seeing the most value today? Yeah, it's interesting, the consumer confidence thing. So so we went and had a look back at this. Um, so I would have had a really good answer for you three months ago, a really clear <laughs> answer. I would have said there are some retailers that are absolute screamers. I won't say unfortunately because we did own some of them, but they've had a pretty big bounce and I don't think they're screamers anymore. Um, but we did some analysis a, c- a couple of months ago. So retail was totally on the nose. It was a downgrade a week from retailers. Everyone was saying it, this was in June or July. You know, you had um, dust come out and, uh, you know, footwear companies and baby bunting and just everyone was downgrading and the, the sector got smoked. You know, we own Nick Scarly. We own Premier Investments. Premier Investments, for example, went from $24 down to 18 really, really quickly. Um, so we were adding – we were adding like crazy and, you know, that's it's now back at 25. But what gave us the confidence to add, I suppose, was we did some analysis on the consumer confidence front, for example. If you had a decision rule to just buy every time consumer confidence bottomed, how did the Australian discretionary retail index as a whole go over the next six to 12 months? Nine times out of 10, it was up and up dramatically. So it's actually kind of like a reverse signal. When consumer confidence is low, it's almost like it can only get better and it's a good time to buy the stocks because the stocks are usually cheap. We did it. Look, we looked at it specifically for Premier and for Nick Scarly. Again, both of them, if you had a decision rule to just buy every time they got really cheap, and that at that time they were very, very cheap, you know, we looked back at that over 10, 15 years, the stocks were up in some instances 50 to 100% in the next 6 to 12 months. So, you know, it kind of backed us up that you want to buy these things when – well, first of all, when they've got great balance sheets. So Premier, for example, it's got 400 mil net cash. It owns 25% of Maya, 25% of Breville. So, you know, listed equities puts it at over a billion dollar kind of fortress like balance sheet. So, you know, no matter what happens in the cycle, it's going nowhere. It's a very well capitalised company. And then it's got cracking businesses like Peter Alexander and Smiggle that when people go from hating retail to loving retail again – those are the businesses that are going to fly because they've got unique propositions and great returns. So, yeah, that, that, that was kind of our framework. And I think it's, it's probably a lesson of, you know, there's this, this short-term focus on trying to avoid or figure out where you are in the cycle and cut your exposure to things that are, you know, negatively impacted by that point in the cycle. Again, it brings it back to that. If it's in the headlines, it's probably in the price. And I've made this mistake before in my career. I remember when I first launched this, the Early Australian Retail Fund just over five years ago, our largest position was Reese because Matt's loved Reese and invested in it for decades. And I think we day one it was 12 bucks. If you go back to 2018, if you remember, like, Aussie housing was totally on the nose. Shorten was looking like a certain to get in and he was going to – remove negative gearing and and basically anything related to housing was absolutely smoked so the stock went from 12 bucks to nine dollars and of course i get point of maximum pain fear at nine dollars and cut the position and three years later it's 27 bucks so i didn't cut it to nothing but i reduced the risk that i saw at the time totally wrong decision totally wrong decision so now i have this mindset of where is fear around the short-term cycle 
giving us an opportunity to buy a great business at a reasonable price because it's so rare that you can buy a great business at a reasonable price. Usually if it's obvious that a company is a great business, they're on you know crazy multiples. So it's because there's a cycle a lot of the time that you can buy them on cheap multiples. So Hardee's, you know, a year ago, the US housing market, the outlook was so dire. Mm. The stock derated from mid-20s, which is usually where it sits, down to like 13 times earnings. And again, you know, the average company's on 20 times. So 13 times is incredibly cheap. And this is a business with a much better track record than the average company. So you could buy it cheap then, now it's nearly doubled. Um, the retailers, you you know, just having this mindset of everyone's selling the retailers right now. So how about I go into that sector and find the best ones and buy them and I won't get the bottom and I'll probably look like an idiot for three months or six months, but it gives me a chance to buy these great businesses at a good price, which is so rare in markets. If consumer discretionary has rebounded recently, where are you seeing maximum fear today? Would it be like yeah. the REITs? Or yeah, where that's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. Yeah, definitely the REITs, definitely. And, uh, you know, we own we own a couple of REITs, nothing, you know, no no major swings, but the, the largest position we have is in Charter Hall. And I think what attracts us there is, you know, because it's a fund manager, it's got the economics of a fund manager. And it also has, uh, you know, Ailey's a fund manager and, and any fund manager would know that, you know, you've got great economics, like you don't need capital to grow your business, but there's a fragility there because the fund can, dis- the fund can disappear tomorrow. Um, whereas Charter Hall, they've got a lot of, you know, factors that makes their fund, fund very sticky. You know, you've got seven-year redemption windows in a lot of their funds. Um, if they have a, some of their funds are a partnership with, um, with large Insto clients and, and those partnerships are sort of evergreen, like it, it, they can never get out. If they, if they want to get out, they find another partner to buy in, basically. So it's sort of very, very sticky money. And, you know, do I know what the 10 years is going to do? Absolutely not. I don't spend my time trying to figure that out. What we're reacting to is what the valuations are implying. And I think that's one where uh, the valuations are implying, you know, pretty bearish outcome. Okay. You've pitched quite a few winning stock picks in your career, including CSL, West Farmers, PWR Holdings and Mineral Resources, to name a few. I want to talk about CSL in particular. Obviously, there's been some concerns recently on their outlook and the VIFOR acquisition. Has that changed your view on that stock? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the, the, the short answer is no, but the longer answer is one of the most difficult things in investing, I think, is trying to figure out what to do when in real time you you have a downgrade in your own your own view of a company at the same time as the share price has moved down. So that's kind of the situation that I'm in with CSL. And really the downgrade in my own view of the company, slight downgrade, is related to the V4 acquisition. Uh, They paid a very big price for that. I'm not entirely sold on the rationale. I struggle to see who's really, from a management perspective, owning the decision. You know, the the price here is now left. And then, you know, there's just some things that, like when I've covered CSL for a very long time and it's just not the CSL of old some of the things like, you know, buying this business and then immediately restating all of the um, segments so that we now can't really get an apples and apples look back at, at how the divisions are performing. And then, you know, allocating, they did the final allocation of goodwill on the acquisition. There was a lot of goodwill because they paid a very big price, but they allocated the bulk of it to the CSL bearing business, which is their base business, 
Now, they have their reasons for that, which is that, you know, they think that um, a lot of the benefits from owning B4 will accrue to that division. But the sceptic in me says, well, if they ever need to write down the goodwill or do an impairment, they're now not going to have to because they're testing it against bearing, which, you know, is never going to lead to an impairment. So it's just little things like that that I just, it's not, if the CSL of old wouldn't have done them. But then I weigh that against, A, a share price that has fallen, so a valuation that is more compelling now than it has been in years, and B, the fact that V4 is not a huge part of their business. It's about 12% of EBIT. And the bigger part of their business, which is CSL bearing their plasma business, which is you know about just under 70% of their earnings, it, I think it has a really good outlook. It's, it was smashed during the pandemic because it was very hard to get people in the US, which is where their collection base is, to come and donate plasma. Mm-hmm. They get paid to donate, but basically because of the pandemic, no one wanted to come out and donate plasma. So they had falling volumes as at the same time they had to pay people more and more to come. So it was sort of like a double whammy that really torched their gross margins. Like pre-pandemic, they made a 58% gross margin in bearing mm-hmm. and at, at its lows last year, they made a 49% gross margin. So we're talking, what's that, 900 basis points of gross margin erosion. So we think that then goes the other way over the next few years um, and that underpins a lot of earnings growth. So we like it, we own it, but... I'm just being honest about, you know, the, the it's not my job isn't to be a cheerleader for every company we own. My job is to, you know, allocate capital to where the kind mm-hmm. of trade off and, and, and weights between business quality and valuation and balance sheet and management, where that all looks attractive. And I think the answer for this stock is that it looks attractive, but there are things that, you know, I'm watching that kind of annoy me. Right. So you wouldn't be buying more today? No, I would be actually. I would okay. be at, at current share price, yeah. I would be. I would be. In fact, am um but like I said you know there's just little things that irk me I I just I'm not a big fan of big acquisitions now CSL have one of the best track records of transformative M&A so they've earned the right and that's why this deal which was the largest raising in in the ASX history I'm pretty sure that's why it was supported that's why it got away because the two acquisitions they've done in the past which was the original bearing business the plasma business that set them up um, for for what they've delivered, um, and the flu business, they they bought um, a loss making flu business for two hundred million dollars, and they had to immediately write it up to their balance sheet because the raw assets that they bought were worth more than two hundred million dollars, and now that business has gone from loss making to making three hundred million dollars. So that you know everyone's primed to think CSL M and A is a good time, and this may end up this may end up being a belter, but. My, you know, my hackles are up, my antennas up. I think everyone's is, you know, they have to deliver, put it another way. This won't be flu because they didn't get this business for a song. It's going to sit on the returns of the business for a long time. Um, This was an incredible organic growth company with very high returns and they paid a big price for an asset that people are kind of wondering why they bought. So they need to deliver. That's all there is to it. Mm. We've come to the end of the podcast where we pose three common questions to our guests before we wrap up. It's a bit of fun. It's a bit of a thought experiment. In your view, what is the one thing investors are getting wrong about today's market? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess I've alluded to it in the course of this conversation, but just this dominant focus on the macro. Like I get why this is, it's really interesting stuff trying to think about where in interest rates are going or where inflation's going and all these macro things. So it's not that it's not interesting. It's just that I don't think anyone's going to get it right. And even if you get one thing right, you're probably not going to establish a good track record of getting every macro call right. It's just too hard. The the world is too complex. There's just far too many variables. I think, look at the Fed. Like, you look where the Fed dot point plot was two years ago. 
you know, they thought rates were going to be like 1% now. Um, so the Fed don't know. So And then markets sell off because the dot point plot has changed. The Fed don't know. They mm. are reacting in real time along with the rest of us. Yeah. So don't put any value in what they're projecting because they do not know. So, yeah, this short-term focus on the macro, um, I, don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's a good use to, of, of my energy. Okay. Can you share a story of a big win or a big loss from your investing career? What happened and what was the lesson that you learnt from that? Yeah, I, look, I'll share a loss because I think you learn a lot from your losses. Uh, and I think you learn the most from like your early losses because they like the, everyone's got it. Everyone's got every investor's got a stock that they never want anyone else to bring up because they feel like such an <laughs> idiot whenever it comes up. So I will reveal what my stock is. So Slater and Gordon, like this is the ultimate blow up. Like when you think about risk in investing, the ultimate risk is that you don't get your money back at all because the stock's a donut. So this is mm. this is this is as big a mistake as you can get. I was a young analyst. This would have been 2015. So, you know, I was nearly a decade ago and I thought it was a buy and it wasn't. And the lessons that I learned have been, you know, you can learn lessons, but some lessons like etched in your veins. And these, when you go through such a, you know, such a blow up, a big position that goes to zero, like they're etched in your veins. So the, the lessons were really powerful lessons, really grateful that I learned them so early on in my career. But, you know, what went wrong was effectively... This was a people business and they bought a UK business that didn't make any money and they debt funded that acquisition and it was a large acquisition. So it taught me, you know, I said earlier I'm so sceptical of acquisitions. It taught me to be wary of acquisitions. It taught me to be very wary when they're debt funded. It taught me to be very, very wary when they're debt funded and they don't generate a lot of cash flow. And it taught me, you know, as a result, roll-ups as well you know this was a, a lawyer roll-up um, they were buying law firms and, and bringing them into the fold they also had quite a lot of latitude on how they re- recognized revenue mm. so it was all around work in progress and they could yes, book it as revenue but it that. wasn't booked as cash yeah. so again like as a young analyst I was sucked into the narrative that management were feeding us around why you had this dispersion between cash and revenue but the cash flow statement never lies like the, the P&L can lie the cash flow statement doesn't lie so that, you know, lays a focus on the cash flow statement and that just tells you so much about you You really need to understand as an investor how does cash flow through a company and what are the cash needs of that business. Um, and when you throw in debt, you know, low cash flow generation, uh, a, a potentially fraudulent acquisition that they bought and uh, a lot of debt is a toxic combo. Um, so I'm very, very grateful to have made such a cataclysmically stupid mistake very early <laughs> on in my career because I learned a lot of really powerful lessons. Would that be the most important factor investors should look at then, cash flow? Yeah, I think so. I think I always struggle to distill it to one important factor, but I think I would be paying more attention to long-term cash flow generation out of a business than long-term EBITDA, for example. And EBITDA would get a lot more of the focus. Mm, definitely more of the headlines as well. Okay, last question for today. If markets close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, what would that company be and why? I think I'd end up, you know, given, given, given what I said earlier, I think it's got to be ResMed. Um, at least, you know, thinking it through, I think in five years' time, if I'm wrong and the, um, the people that, you know, think GLP-1s are going to decimate sleep apnea market are right, I don't think you're going to lose much money. Because that's what, I think that's what the share price is implying. And if they're wrong and I was right, five years is long enough to kind of prove that out, that it isn't having a significant impact on their end markets, and I think you'll make a lot of money. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Emma. I've absolutely adored this chat. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Thanks again to Bell Direct for supporting this podcast. And remember, for a limited time, you can get three Bell Potter stock reports each week and you'll go into the draw to win a share of 3 million Velocity Frequent Flyer points. So go to Bell Direct, check the full terms and conditions and look for the Livewire logo to get your Bell Potter stock reports now. Competition ends 31 October 2023. Entry conditions and eligibility criteria apply. New South Wales Authority number TP forward slash 02866, SA permit number T23 forward slash 123, ACT permit number TP23 forward slash 01592.